Good morning, good morning. Welcome to uh, Boat Talk on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor, and on the internet, on the internet at WERU.org, Boat Talk is a uh, call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, and we're also Joined again by John Johansson, editor of Maine Coastal News and uh, our roving reporter as far as shipyard news goes. And that's basically going to be what we're going to be talking about a lot today is uh, local boatyard projects that are happening. But first we're going to delve into a few little uh, odd subjects that Mike has picked up from the papers and uh, some interesting Wave news from G-Captain, too. Oh, I did, yeah. Oh, I left my all my notes and my clippings on the kitchen table <laughs> this morning, but we can fake it a little bit. Um, try to uh, mention the climate change and, uh, you know, uh, every Boat Talk episode, uh, possibly the biggest story happening in our lifetimes. Uh, and uh, we'll get to the Bangor Daily News uh, business section today, headline uh, stories. Facing a declining industry, a lobsterman has a plan B. Get to that in a minute. But uh, I really enjoy watching. Uh, it's on at 5 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, uh, Channel 7, U.S. Farm Report. It's an hour long program, and I find it pretty interesting. I don't know much about, uh, you know, uh, industrial farming and stuff, but they do. And the farming uh, people are they're in bad shape this year, uh, a lot because of weather. Um, Crops are substantially uh, still unharvested. Corn, soybeans still standing out in the fields. Stuff that has been harvested has been flooded. Uh, so why couldn't they harvest? Because of weather, weather, flooding, uh, uh, snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's been just a weird, uh, wacky weather year for them. And uh, then they have the fact that um, soybean uh, sales to China are down 94% this year. And uh, we've uh, come up with a promised $12 billion to subsidy, subsidy to them, only $800 million has been delivered so far, and the subsidy on a bushel of soybeans is $0.82.5, cents, which uh, is said to be less than half their loss. Milk uh, production down uh, $1.5 billion, $130 million in aid has already come through, and, uh, you know, the harvest must be complete to get your money. And, again, uh, a lot of the stuff is, is uh, unharvested so far. Um, nobody's really talking about that, and... Uh, it come up in context of Alaska. Um, Alaska is one of the few places that the uh, Gulf of Alaska is warming faster than the Gulf of Maine, which is saying something, you know. And they are having um, permafrost problems up north there where uh, roads are buckling and they have what they call drunken forests. Trees are, are uh, falling out of the ground. Houses as, are falling in, too. As the ground heaves, yeah. Yeah. Those uh, trees, after they die, are not going to be an uh, ecosystem. Nursery, uh, you know, uh, they're going to be kindling. And make make uh, California look like a kindling incident instead oh, of a real boy. forest fire. Oh, like you know, smoke will make things worse too. Uh, again, uh, there's uh, methane under the uh, uh, <laughs> permafrost that uh, you know right. escalate and, um, <laughs> and so then we come to the uh, uh, and, and here's a great uh, little thing. Uh, 
One senator points out that uh, these subsidies were essentially borrowing money from China to pay farmers not to sell their crops to China. <laughs> you know, well, it's kind of uh, and uh, fifteen. Uh, uh, percent new tariffs are made to go on China consumer goods starting on Sunday, and uh, we're about to delay those because, again, a lot of people ain't very happy right now. This uh, article in the Bangor Daily News here, farmer, uh, sorry, fisherman coming up with Plan B, Jesse Tyler from South Blue Hill, um, says here his, uh, in terms of lobster weight, the all-ins catch last year was about 35% lower. Uh, and he's been uh, declining the last three years in a low. That's slightly better than what looks like to be the overall industry take in 2019. As the end of September, state lobstermen had caught less than 50 million pounds, or 40% less than they caught by September 2018. It's also 40% off the five-year average. Um, there's a tariff on uh, we've lost our market selling lobsters to China. No, we haven't. Going to Canada. Well, it goes to Canada, and then they sell them, uh, you know. So you, you skin the cat. And again, way. who understands all this stuff, and, and you know, is it, uh, you know, good for the little guy? Now, you've just been out talking to some uh, fishermen yourself. Oh, yeah, and some of them are doing very well. It depends on where you're fishing. And, you know, offshore seems to be a lot better. The lobsters move later, uh, mostly because, like you said, the weather had not been very good. You know, early in the spring had been horrible. I mean, you had a lot of rain. Not much sun, so the temperature of the ocean didn't warm up like it really should to let the lobsters move. You know, usually they like it above 65 to 67 degrees to move. Yeah. So they weren't seeing it, and then all of a sudden they did in September and October. And the nice thing is the price stayed up, and that helped some of them that weren't catching, you know, what they normally do, helped them kind of get back to... Close to zero, but some didn't make it even that close. We've uh, pointed out in past Boat Talk episodes that the uh, overall lobster uh, fishery value has stayed up, partly because of the uh, new expanded uh, winter fishery, which was based on uh, selling uh, holiday lobsters to China, basically. And we also point out that the boys in the in the summer and in the winter are not fishing the same grounds they do in the summer. They're going way outside. Mm-hmm. And again, it's winter time. Everything's uh, colder, harder, more dangerous. And it's your nasty. overhead for baiting, uh, fueling up, and uh, taking a helper or two offshore is uh, a pretty good commitment for the day. You now find that helper. Yeah, like I say, you've spent a good deal of money for it. You've even turned the key, so. Oh, yeah. Or, uh, and caught a lobster, so, again. And there's a lot uh, more competition offshore now. You, you, back in the, what, when they start going offshore, 60s, 70s, when Bobby Brown started going offshore out of Gloucester, you know, now there's a lot of people that go away offshore. Yeah. You know, used to just be a few of them. And the fishing was really, really good. But. Well, but it's not, you know, I don't know if it makes up for the inshore factory. That uh, no. uh, I, I, uh, he, I, I'm trying to think of the uh, relative value of the fishery, whatever it is. Uh, you'd love to have that factory up and down your coast, you know, <laughs> uh, spread out too. And, and the boys, uh, when they make the money, they spend it. Oh, yes. You know, and when they don't, uh, you know. Mm. What's the common th- thermometer of the industry tell me that pickup truck yeah right <laughs> and <laughs> probably right <laughs> and i get over to nova scotia quite a bit and a season or two ago we were looking for a, a fuel filter and an old uh, coast guard uh cadian uh, uh coast guard captain uh, uh 
give us a tour of the wharfs. The boys were fitting out for Heron at the time, and we took a nice tour up and down both sides of the Armouth Coast there. And, uh, man, those boys are all driving wider pickup trucks. with du- They're all driving dualies. Okay, mm-hmm. double wheels in the back. And, well, they have heavy loads. Yeah, and they're all and their boats are way wider than ours. Uh, they ain't as pretty, but you know, they'll drive in wider, bigger boats and pickup trucks. Is that was my conclusion down there. Well, the Most, other thing that was really good this year was the Heron and uh, uh, Manhattan being in close to shore because a lot of fishermen were making quite a bit of money, you know, jumping into that fishery in the morning. Mm. Because it offset their bait prices. I think one of the things I left on the kitchen table referred to the fact that uh, they're about to or have just made a decision on the shrimp fishery again this year, and I don't think we're going to have one. I'm, uh, no, but Canada will. Beautiful little tasty Gulf of Maine shrimp, not these huge things that uh, other people call shrimp, you know. Yeah, those yeah. Gulf things are on steroids. Uh, it's like the difference between a Maine blueberry and a New Jersey, uh, you know. Uh, the one that hangs from a tree. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, ain't the same thing at all and, and uh, not good that we ain't having some. So, no. yeah, not good at all. Um, the other thing that uh, struck me, this uh, I just uh, read this uh, book, uh, Michael Carr. All hell breaks loose. Uh, I don't have the uh, subtitle here, but basically it's the Pentagon and climate change. And they say that it is uh, irresponsible not to recognize and plan for it in the future. And they are basically the only government agency which is actively working on the problem. Uh, They have to be realistic about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, as one admiral says, uh, if you haven't got a base to leave from, you can't do nothing to nobody. (laughs) You know, uh, Norfolk, for instance, built on uh, filled land and floods on on, uh, high tides nowadays, let alone storms, you know. Right. Um, uh, Again, the uh, Pentagon uh, being the most realistic part of the U.S. government, um, read another thing um, that says we actively were shooting and uh, bombing in nine countries last year, and we have special forces in like 140 out of 180 different uh, nations on Earth, more or less, and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know. I uh, ain't smiling at any of that. The uh, endless war wind doesn't seem to be uh, working for us, but you got to love the fact that uh, they're realistic and, uh, you know, uh, recognize uh, bad weather for what it is. And, and the fact Is this that, our Michael Carr? Uh, Clar. Oh, Michael, Clar. Yeah. Uh, K-L-A-R-E. Yeah, no. yeah, Michael Clar with a K. Okay. K-L-A-R. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't anyway. think he had broadened out that far. Yeah. So, our uh, like I say, military is leading the... Uh, uh, you know, a bunch of denialists, which, again, uh, let's see how that works out in the long term, you know. Fascinating times to live in, uh, uh, but, you know. As Everybody's said, got L.L. Beans. Oh, Get those boots. Yeah, being, being outsider, they say, yes. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, oh, good Lord, like say, may you uh, die, uh, live in interesting times, but, uh, you know, chaos is fun to watch, but right until you get smucked with it. So you Yeah, know. well, we're keeping track of it nowadays, too. Here's... I. I was reading in G Captain just the other day that uh, off of California last month on November 27th they recorded a 74 foot wave off the coast of California. Yeah, it was on. Was it yesterday? The, the, it was posted yesterday. yesterday. Yeah. yeah, but the uh, the wave was actually on November 27th. Um, it's a big wave. I think out in California, there's probably a bunch of surfers out there. Oh, they're ready for it. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, remember when you were a kid, they had some sort of uh, a warning of a 
of you know a tsunami coming to California, and they all went down to watch it. Grab your board. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where did the wave come from? It was a. It, there was a big low pressure off the uh, the North Pacific. <clears throat> so it wasn't a like an earthquake or well, something. No, it was no, a no, weather no, wave. No, it was a weather wow. wave. Yeah. But they but they get to be a hundred feet in the Southern Ocean in the forty and fifty latitudes, right? They're keeping track of it now because they're using satellites. The right. satellites keep track of This is a new term that I'd never heard. Uh, significant wave height. Significant wave height is the average, uh, the average from the height of the crest all the way down to the trough mm-hmm. of one-third of all the highest waves in your measuring circle that your satellite is looking at. Somehow is able to keep track of all those waves instantaneously takes the highest one third and averages that to make what they call a significant wave height. Because hmm. I know in some of the races, you know, around the world, they drop into the forty and fifty latitudes, and they can get waves up to a hundred feet. But that's a rogue wave. So, so by but by averaging it, rogue waves, yeah. right? But by averaging it, you could see that figure dropping. Oh yeah, the average is much lower than right. what a high one can really be, but. Can you we, imagine coming down the face of that? <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's why I said the servers are headed there. Gives, gives a new r- r- meaning to pitch polling. My uh, pitch, yeah. experience <laughs> in a Force 10 gale is uh, it is just an awesome sight and scare the crap out of you, and then the boat goes up and the wave goes past, and you go, wow, and we, and we did it again, and, and we're, you know, we're doing this. Good we're all so right. far. Yeah. And, then, and then one of them breaks on you, mm-hmm. yeah. and I'm standing at the wheel of a Hinkley 50, and now I'm up to the rim of the cockpit <laughs> as filled with water, and, uh, you know, it literally broke on my head. And the first thought I had was, it's warm. <laughs> We're on the way to Bermuda. <laughs> you sure that it was water. the outside water that uh, was warm? I didn't mention that part, but yes, there was more water there. It did. Yeah. And, uh, no yeah, but uh, again, we were pooped and buried. Uh, we took probably a companionway. It was locked at the time. And, and, Good thing. Uh, probably took uh, 20 plus gallons through the lock companionway as the boat uh, shed that water that come aboard you know and uh, we're probably lucky we didn't get uh, pooped worse so mm-hmm. yeah. yeah but that way of breaking is, is uh, like say the boat will go up and down them until one breaks on you oh, so yeah. we have uh, JB on the phone now okay so uh, I'm gonna let John do the introductions of uh, JB go ahead John hey JB Hey, John. How are you doing? Not bad. JB is uh, JB Turner from Front Street uh, Shipyard in Belfast, and he has some very interesting projects underway at the shipyard. Tell us about Sunbeam. Oh, sure. Yeah, Sunbeam's a mission boat from uh, Northeast Harbor, and uh, we've got her pretty torn apart at this point. Um, we've ended up having to sandblast considerable more of the interior than we originally had thought. And, uh, and the surveyors had thought. But uh, it's all moving forward. We're currently sandblasting the entire engine room at this point because we found that there was uh, sodium chloride in the plating. And uh, we knew that once, <clears throat> once, once it failed that test, we had to um, sandblast the engine room to be able to have the plate be able to hold paint again in, in the future. Mm-hmm. So we're in process of doing that right now so that we can get the mechanics and the systems going back into the boat. We we have done the pilot house, so we're moving forward in that area, and we've done the, the lower decks, um, so we are moving forward in those areas. But we still have, so we still have the engine room to finish blasting and painting so we can get the mechanics going back into that area and start putting everything 
literally everything back in the engine room, and then we have to still sandblast the whole main deck um, and paint that out so that we can put that back together again. So, JB, did you project. did you say that the uh, steel has got salt and it's uh, yeah it's pickled it's, itself? It's actually it's a new new to us um, issue that we've seen on uh, some of the bigger and older fed ships and boats that travel the world. They in time, salt can work its way into the plating, and once that happens, it's no longer going to. It's because all the paint tends to blister off. Mm. So how do you so, deal with that? So we sandblast it, and then we do another test and see if, if that doesn't get it. Then we pressure wash it with over that three thousand psi water, and then sandblast again and check again to see if it's it's out. Luckily, we found that just one sandblasting is going to take care of it on this boat. One problem with that damned old wood is it absorbs stuff. You know, you wouldn't think steel had the same issue. I know, but it does. It does. It's crazy. And, it, wow. you know, obviously it's normally on the outside of the boat, but in this case it was on the inside just from, you know, fittings and sweating over the years. Oh, good Lord. So yeah. what are your other projects? So besides the Sunbeam project, which is, you know, a really good one for us because it takes takes all of our trades uh, and <laughs> keeps them busy, um, we have a 90-foot uh, cold molded boat built in Turkey that we're stripping the hull on and renewing that with epoxy. Uh, we'll put on six coats of epoxy, sand that, and then we're going to clear coat it with eight coats of clear coat. Uh, we have three or four paint jobs going on in the yard, ranging in size from 70 feet to 40 feet. Uh, we've got a lot of mechanical work this year. Uh, there's various projects on multiple boats with um, mechanical sometimes fairly major systems coming out of the boat and being replaced. Of course, boats like the Sunbeam, we're replacing boat generators. Um, the engine came out, but it's going to go back in and all new systems from there. But otherwise, you know, we have other boats also with the same types of issues. Uh, we have a Nordhaven 57 that we're working on with considerable amount of mechanical process. The owner wants the boat to never break down for 10 years, which is really not possible, but <laughs> we're going to do our best. And we're not, we're not we're laughing at him. We're yeah, laughing no. with him. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you work on it for nine, you'll be okay. Exactly. Yeah. Case for my boat, at least. Um, so we've got a good variety of projects going on. We've got a Sundeer 64 that's been in being refit for, since last spring. Uh, we worked on it since the summer and we're going to finish up this winter so that that gentleman can get her commission, do some cruising in Maine next summer, and then head to Australia. Um, so it's a, that's been a good project, and it continues on. Um, You've got some very interesting boats there. You got Atlantide. Yeah, we've got Atlantide, which we just did a sandblast on the bottom, and, and we repaired some of the fairing and recoating, and we're doing some window repairs, and um, I'm sure we'll do some varnish work at some point along the way. Now she's got an interesting history, right? Yeah, yeah, she was built in 1930. And she was actually one of the little ships at Dunkirk, um, rescue, helping rescue the soldiers off the beach. And uh, from there, she was used for many years and then sort of fell into a bit of disrepair where um, this, uh, the financier um, Perkins bought her and did a massive refit back in 98, 99, uh, renamed her. And uh, she was actually the tender to Maltese Falcon, which was one of the biggest sailing yachts ever built. For a little while, it's always nice to have a 120 foot tender when you can have when you can get it. <laughs> um, 
And, uh, you know, we have votes like, uh, as John mentioned, we have Google Vigilant, which is a, a different kind of vote built in 1950 by Abiking and Rasmussen in Germany and out of steel. And uh, the interesting part about her history is that she was used for the first 10 years, but then put in a shed in England for 40 years and basically mothballed. So when this gentleman who owns her now bought her, you know, he was essentially buying a 10-year-old bow, even though it was 50 years old at the time. So that's another interesting story. Folks uh, don't like to sit, JB. Yeah. Uh, no, no, it, it took some money to get her back together again, but she's she's great boat now. Actually, he just donated her to the Mystic Seaport. So. <clears throat> Ken so Garner is another neat one you've yep. got. Yep, Ken Garner built in 1901. One of the last Elizabethan steamships still powered by steam. Um, we've done a lot of work on her last summer, and last winter we painted the hull. And he also, uh, the same owner, has a P-boat, uh, Airshaft P-boat, which we'll be uh, doing some work on this winter, uh, which he brought to us. So that's another good paint project and uh, good detail project. The way I look uh, yeah. at it, you guys work on uh, bigger boats than uh, most other uh, boatyards up and down the coast here, JB. How many people you got working down there in Belfast? We have 96 people right now. Uh, we cover all the trades, and you know, we cover all the, the different types of boats. So we work on wooden boats. We work on aluminum, steel, fiberglass, carbon fiber, composites, you know, any really anything that you can kind of throw at us. We pride ourselves in being able to handle and, uh, and hopefully do it well. And are you able to always find good people when you need them? Well, it takes time. You know, when we first have the initial panic, everybody comes running at me and says, you know, we got to have five more people right now. And I'm like, well, you're not going to have five people right now, but you're going to have you know, two people in a month and five people in two months, probably. So it just, it just takes time. And we people. finding people from away as well as locals? Yeah, both. Both. And people sort of gravitate towards the projects. And if we've got a good project going on, people hear about that. It, it draws people in, and it, it, it's fairly challenging working on boats compared to working on houses. Or really, anything that's plumb true, true and square is not a boat. So <laughs> yep. there's many more challenges to working on those. Yeah, and there's more systems involved. You know, a ship or boat has to be able to basically take care of itself. It creates its own electricity. It makes its own water. It does all those things that you know houses don't do. I, I like to say that there's a lot more knee time in working on boats than there is yeah. on houses. <laughs> you don't of, have to be religious. Involved. So, uh, JB, I'm curious, back to the uh, sandblasting mm -hmm. in uh, Sunbeam, um, mm -hmm. there must have been quite a mess, and 90% uh, of that mess, I'm sure, ended up in the bilges. How do you deal with that? Well, we have, uh, you know, it's, it's hard work, it's hard work both for the guy sandblasting which is you know i can't even imagine doing that all the time but john does an awesome job and then uh the guys in our paint crew that have to go in and literally shovel it out we we bring it up in some areas we bring it up through the soft patch that we cut uh we bought a uh 55 gallon barrel that can lift up with a rotary crane and then it rotates and dumps itself into the into the big dumpster that we have or we go out through the bottom where we've cut various holes to replace plating anyways and we'll shovel it down through that and then the guys have to do it but it's a arduous task to be shoveling and cleaning and getting it really clean enough to paint pretty quickly 
and that's a that's a big step. But it's yeah. no fun. Yeah. Those guys look like they come out of the coal mine, even though they were. Must have been sick. noisy too. Oh, yeah, it's brutal. <laughs> it's brutal. <laughs> you got some good people working for you. Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, so there's a variety though. We have a lot of different projects going on, a lot of different types of projects and skills that are needed to do it. So it's, it keeps it challenging and it keeps it fun for the people. Can you talk about the Navy project? Well, I can't talk about that one specifically, but I can talk about the 36 that we just finished up and ran for the uh, for ONR as a test project. And it was basically proving a new hull form. Uh, it was actually iteration, I think, eight of a previously done uh, hull form that Navitech, this company in Hawaii that does design work, had been working on for many years. And this is sort of the culmination of that work. So we built a 36-foot rib uh, and ran it a couple weeks ago for uh, the folks at ONR, and they they loved it. Uh, and now we're hoping to commercialize it. Um, now, since we have the molds, it would make sense to do so. And it is a great running boat. I mean, it handles the seaway well. It, it, it tracks beautifully. It turns well. Uh, it's a good all-around you know, rib for as a tender or a fishing boat or whatever you want to do with it. A rib is a uh, rigid inflatable boat for uh, yep, people that exactly. don't know ribbies. Yeah, uh, inflatable tubes, hard bottom. Yeah. Yep. And we're working on two other projects for the Navy, but I'm not able to talk <laughs> about those yet. <laughs> good Lord, are we worried or uh, feel good that you, you've got it? So. <laughs> no, they're mostly testing. All right. The test platforms we're building. Yep. All yep. right. Good Composites. to know. And also to help. Uh, you know, part of that is just to promote composites within the Navy. They've been so stuck on steel for so many, so many generations that uh, we're trying to prove that composites are not only viable but better in many ways uh, than steel or aluminum. You mentioned a um, coal-molded boat that you're uh, redoing. How is that? Uh, yeah. And coal-molded is a boat that's uh, usually made with thin uh, uh, strips of wood uh, heavily uh, glued in epoxy and covered in epoxy. And how is that held up? Uh, she's held up really well. It's not the, what we're doing for work is really cosmetics. The hull structure and the hull itself are doing fantastic. You know, it's they, people sometimes think, well, it's a wooden boat, but you know, cold molded boat is closer to an epoxy boat than it is to a cold to, to a wooden boat. It really is composite way. with with uh, wood being miracle fiber W in an epoxy exactly. matrix, yeah, yeah. as the West System yeah. people say. Yeah, exactly. And it's super strong. And uh, you know, this boat's been all over the world. And what we're doing is really just stripping the hull down because the coating, some of the, the clear coat that was put on the hull originally has failed. So. We're uh, renewing that and hopefully giving a system that'll last longer. They must uh, have used it in the sun. Epoxy does not like a lot of things. Don't like sunlight, uh, and that includes no, epoxy. Yeah. yeah, epoxy hates sun, and it, that's why we have to protect it with so many layers of clear coat on yeah. top of it. Have you uh, got anything on the ferries? It's moving. Um, yeah, thanks for asking. It's uh, we have some serious interest still in the folks of Islesboro. Actually, it might be one of our first. Uh, ferries. We have um, putting up bids to the gro- uh, to the uh, ferry system in New York because New York has finally figured out, along with all the other major cities in the United States, San Francisco, uh, Tampa, Seattle, they're all turning back to the ocean because they can't build more roads. The cities are overcrowded. Uh, they can't build new subways. Um, so they're 
all slowly turning back to the ocean is the way to move people around. Uh, it's easily expandable. And um, so we're very hopeful that the ferries will really take off once we get the first one under our belt. Uh, we're putting up bids to folks in San Francisco and Seattle as well. Uh, the carbon fiber fast ferry is really helped by the fact that everybody wants to go electric these days. And uh, the big cities especially being uh, pushed towards using electric ferries. And that lends itself to the carbon fiber because it's 40% lighter in the hull and the deck structure than um, than aluminum boat would be. So it makes it makes it a, a more viable product to use for electro, electric uh, propulsion. And JB, what you're speaking of is building the ferry, not providing the service, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah, we're going to build it. We don't. We don't want to be the operator. We're just, we're a lot of ferries. bunch of people oh, unhappy with the main ferry service right now. I know. <laughs> yes, there are a few people that are upset about it. Yeah, but again, yeah. moving things by water. Um, I like some uh, British guys. First uh, people to manhaul all the way to the South Pole. They said, "Look, if you got to pick it up, carry it on your back. You can't take much stuff. If you can drag it and uh, skid it over the snow, that's better. But if you can float it, bring everything. You know, exactly. Yeah." <laughs> Yeah, it's it's amazing that they, and I'm kind of amazed that <laughs> the government has figured it out. That yep, you can actually expand the ferry system and help people a lot. Yeah, they're they're brewing. New York is doing more and more expansion of the ferry service. They're talking about further and further up Long Island, further and further down Connecticut, towards get people into the into the city. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. That's a, it's a, we're very hopeful that we'll have something this summer to uh, to start working on. So what will it take to get Islesboro online? Somebody to write a check. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't they want the state to come in and help run it? Yeah, they, they seem to be interested in um, what they, of course, they'd love to have the state involved in both the build and the operating system, mm-hmm. but if they realize the state isn't going to step up to the plate to the build, then they will, but they, they really would like some help in the operation of it. And they're, what they're trying to do is promote it as a, uh, obviously, as with Islesboro, as it goes with all the islands in Maine, they're trying to keep the population of the island stable, if not growing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they really see this as a fast ferry that can makes it a viable option to have a, as a commuter system basically between Belfast and, and Islesboro, uh, to make, you know, if you're going quickly, you can get there pretty darn fast. So it's just like driving your car home. And uh, it makes it a viable solution as opposed to taking the slow steel ferry across to Lincolnville and then <laughs> driving to wherever you are. <laughs> JB, what, what do you think about the uh, autonomous of uh, I'm not sure if they're ferries, but the uh, vessels that they're trying now in Scandinavia. Well, it's it's being talked about. You know, that's one very small segment of what we're working with the Navy on as well. There, there are autonomous ships coming online, and uh, you just got to be very thoughtful of what, everything that your um, that the boat can actually fix itself. And it goes down to simple things like, you know, what happens with the sea? If you go through a patch of heavy, heavy kelp or seaweed that's somewhere out in the ocean, sure, you can switch to another seacock, the computer could, but what if that gets clogged? Then, then where are you? So then you start talking about keel coolers. you got to make sure that the systems have backups that are relatively easy to maintain. 
headline headline the other day tesla on autopilot rear ends police car there you go <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah yeah but i i'm i i don't know, really know this but i'm guessing that there's that we're further along with that technology than we know about i'm sure we are Oh, going to be a brave new future, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yep. JB. Well, thank you for your time. I know it's yeah, uh, absolutely. I know how uh, hard it is to come by. <laughs> so we'll talk to you <laughs> later. Thank you. Uh, all right. Thank you very much. Thank you, JB. Talking to JB Turner down at the Front Street Shipyard down in Belfast, Maine. And uh, I say, the boys, uh, I think, got a great idea. They are... Uh, uh, they go after bigger boats, uh, do bigger boats than most other boatyards around here, and, and the uh, yacht can, market has has a big end to it. And uh, some of those people are are boat nuts as we are. Plus, they've got a ton of money to you know be boat nuts. And it, well, it's interesting always to go through that yard. Every month you go through, and it's always different. There's always something different in there. There was a boat that was sitting out front maybe a month ago that looked like it was designed by George Watson, which would have been turn of 1900. No, it was actually built in 2000 to his design, but they were bringing back these channel cutters. Mm. It it was kind of interesting, some of the stuff that you see floating in there. Replicas. And for those that have never seen Can Garter, I'm not sure she's she's probably covered now, but when they uncover her in the spring, she's sitting right there by the big uh, travel lift dock. And she's impressive to go look at. Is that the one that was a Dunkirk boat? No, that's Atlantide. Okay. And the What's, and Cangarder is the steam yacht that came off the Great ah, Lakes. Yeah, yeah. And there's a great story from Giffy Full when he went up to actually uh, survey the boat when it was in Rochester because basically it was junk. And he told the guy not to buy it. Well, the guy said no, wouldn't buy it. A week later, he calls Giffy and said, I bought it. Well, <laughs> Giffy told him it would bankrupt him, and it yeah. did. It cleaned yeah. him out. Uh-huh. And this guy who owns it now bought it, cut it in three sections, took it to California, and totally rebuilt it, Came, brought her back, and put the interior in because it had been removed. So wow. she's got an interesting story, and it's really nice to see that she's been upkept. She's also, I think, still the large, is, is, was part of the largest divorce deal ever in the history of the United oh, States. let's throw that on top. Heart, oh, yeah. Heartache and uh, break. And, uh, well, yeah. supposedly the owner came in with his girlfriend, and the wife was on the dock. Yeah, not going to work well. Uh, no. <laughs> um, something that I sparked on with JB but didn't uh, ask him about was uh, he said Sunbeam was uh, worse than we thought and worse than the surveyors thought. And there's an old story. Yeah, and it's Once not, you start into it, it, you know, that's one. Of, that's a boat kind of rule. It's going to be worse than you think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Can't and see. people don't understand that there's no way a surveyor can see everything. Right. You know, they only were able to see what some of the problems were when they took off the insulation and condensation it got behind the insulation and started some rust and that's all they're doing is taking off surface rust in some of these places which isn't that big a deal i am boggled by the idea that salt will permeate steel oh no because you look at uh old anchors in people's yards that they dragged off the bottom yeah. and you see how they start to flake and do funny things yeah. with them. that's because of the salt in it yeah. and what you're supposed to do is put it in baths and to yeah. take the salt out. So That's what they do with the Civil War replicas yeah. and stuff. They put wow. them in, in vats. But um, we have uh, Dave Rowe on the line now, too. Dave Rowe is our... Uh, Captain Dave. Captain Dave. Our, our monthly uh, call-in. Uh, Dave is doing the Great Circle route. 
on Ooh. Stinkpot, Adventures mm-hmm. of Stinkpot on Facebook. Captain Dave, where are you this morning? Oh, we're in New Orleans. We've departed from the Great Loop just a little bit to uh, <laughs> come over to the Big Easy and spend a little bit of time. Uh, weren't you just in Washington, D.C., too? Nope. No, oh. I wasn't. <laughs> okay. I thought you uh, went up to Washington to sing for a minute uh, on Facebook there, but it wouldn't load properly for me yesterday, so I was a little confused about that. Um, Dave, you come down the uh, Mississippi River, you diverted down the Tom Bigby and come into uh, Mobile Bay from uh, the north, and then you've uh, gone back to New Orleans to uh, be a tourist for a while? That's the idea. Uh, we, I, I'd been to New Orleans, but I haven't been here since Katrina, and uh, Stacy had never been, so we decided that it was a good way to use a month of our time, and it has been a, an absolutely wonderful three weeks. We have another week we're going to stay here. Nice. What did you uh, think of the um, uh, waterway from Mobile over to New Orleans? It's heavily commercialized uh, uh, ship channel, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I guess it has a tendency to be. We did not see an awful lot of commercial traffic. I think we passed maybe five or six barge tows coming through there. Um, it, it really wasn't that bad at all. It, it, the, the biggest thing you have to watch for is, is depth. <laughs> along that route. Not, not an awful lot of water in some places. Yeah. Did you come up the uh, South Pass or the Southwest Pass to get to New Orleans? Uh, we just came right across the in- Intracoastal Waterway. So yeah. we, we uh, oh gosh, we, we came from uh, uh, Bay St. Louis the day before uh, and then ran into, the, you know, ran into the uh, ditch and, uh, and there's a, a spot there. Actually, we ran aground in the ditch. There's a spot where they redirected the ditch, and we were going to an anchorage, and, and uh, GPS said, we'll just go this way, a different ditch. Uh, and we got into it and ran aground, ran through it. I mean, it was just it was a silt-in. Uh, we got around it and, and got back into the main channel. But, you know, you, you can't believe the depth you see on the charts around here. Mm. Asked my friend uh, Captain Sonny Perkins yesterday what he thinks about hanging out in New Orleans. He says uh, it's an expensive. He says it's a, a hell of a fun place, but expensive. And he says you've got to watch yourself all the time. The natives are extractive, and and if they can't take it from you one way, they might take it from you another. So you got to keep yourself safe and watch out. But but New Orleans can be a hell of a good town. He says if you want to have a good time. So what oh, are we, what have we been doing for fun? Eating. <laughs> <laughs> Beignet and, and gumbo, uh, gumbo and jambalaya. And, what was the first thing? Get our hands on beignets. Beignets. Yeah, a little fried dough thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just like fried dough, except they're, they're cute and small. And I mean, there's so much fry, uh, you know powdered sugar on top of those things. If you don't, if you don't end up wearing it, then you're not doing it right. <laughs> Especially with a beard, huh? Now, Dave, you are also a uh, musician, and uh, we celebrate your uh, uh, your dad, Tom Rowe, uh, was a great main musician, now gone, uh, Devon Square, Schooner Fair, a uh, bunch of stuff. And uh, tell us about uh, music on your trip. Are you making any, hearing any? Uh, hearing plenty. It's, it's just about everywhere here. Um, I have made a bunch on the boat. I've written some new songs. Um, I, my next show, though, isn't until, uh, what is it, January 17th. I'm playing the 30A Songwriters Festival, which is sort of exciting. Uh, 
John Prime's going to be there, the Indigo Girls, Brian Wilson, a bunch of other people. And they're letting me into this party. I don't know how or why, but it's going to be fun. Where's that at? It's uh, in the Destin area. Florida, yeah. Florida, yeah, yeah. Panhandle. Nice. Now, um, we interviewed our friend um, Hank Halstead uh, years ago. He was, a at the time, a... Uh, um, he was, uh, you know, a uh, delivery captain doing charters and stuff, and he got a uh, charter um, of a fella, uh, and uh, let's see, who else came with him? Uh, oh, I, I'm trying to think who came with him. But anyway, a fella came down to the boat. Turned out to be John Lennon. And, uh, <laughs> that wouldn't surprise me with Hank Alstead. <laughs> Hank, ha- Hank sailed him to Bermuda uh, through a storm, okay? And uh, the reason... Uh, uh, John Lennon was on the boat. Was uh, Yoko had gone back on the heroin and kind of wanted John to uh, disappear for a little while so she could get high, and uh, she kind of uh, arranged this thing for him. John, um, again, they got off in a storm, uh, Force Ten Gale between, uh, and this is in uh, John Lennon: A Life a biography. I read this, and I'm, I'm reading this 900-page book, and one of my friends is in it. <laughs> it kind of blew me away. They get in the storm, and Hank is uh, uh, driving the boat to exhaustion. And then he comes to John and says, look, man, i got to crash. you got to drive the boat for a little ways. And John goes, I can't. What are you, nuts? <laughs> My skinny little guitar player arms, I can't handle this. And, and Hank says, yeah, you can. And as I said earlier, the wave comes, the boat goes up, the wave goes. He's still doing it, you know. And John Lennon had one of the times of his life out there in the storm that night. He was singing uh, obscene sea chanties. He was yelling <laughs> at his daddy, Freddie, who left Julia to go to sea as a steward on a uh, ocean liner, okay? All turns up in Beatles songs later on. Gets better, Dave. He landed in Bermuda and had a house rented. And he landed in Bermuda and songs poured out of him. Okay? He, he started <laughs> like writing songs. What poured out of John Lennon after that storm getting to Bermuda was a double fantasy record. Won a couple of Grammys and, and is an absolute classic. So uh, I was going to ask you, are you being provoked uh, to songwriting by your nautical experience? And I guess you said yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I'm not being as prolific as John Lennon in this case, but uh, I'm certainly turning out some material, and uh, it's going to show itself on a on my next record, I'm sure. Are, are any of the songs related to the loop? Indirectly, uh, you know, you don't come right out and say what you're doing when you when you're writing stuff like this, but uh, yeah, oh, absolutely. No, oh, we're looking forward to it. Nice. And our friend Stacy, uh, Stacy Guth, your partner there, is she uh, right there? Uh, yeah, you hang on. I'll put her. Yeah, let's let's hear Stacy. Yeah, she's right here with me. She's got a head, her headphones half in. So go ahead and start talking. <laughs> yep, there you are. You sound like Stacy. Hello. Welcome to Boat Talk. Thank you so much. I'm a big fan. <laughs> Stacy. Um, uh, from your point of view, uh, is this uh, one of the best ideas ever or, or something you're growing into? <laughs> I think you already know the answer to that by the way the question was formed, but it seemed crazy. I mean, you drop your entire life and, and go live on a boat for a year, and we had boating experience on lakes, but the mighty Mississippi, the Atlantic Ocean, um, I, I've definitely grown a lot out here. It, it's it's something that is kind of forced upon you when when you're on the Mississippi or on the ocean and things start to go downhill. 
you have only one option, and that's to keep going. I, there's nothing else in life that's really like that. You can pull over or take a break or call a friend or have a glass of wine, but when you're on a boat, you got to keep going, and you got to work all the way through it. It's been amazing. It's a fascinating way to see America. It's uh, my favorite way to uh, visit New York City, for instance, you know, is <laughs> up and down the East River and the Hudson. Um, well, one of the things we said when we visited New York City, uh, we were anchored out by the Statue of Liberty, and we said, you know what? We're, let, we're sitting there, you know, in the V-Birth, and I said, you know, this is the, the cheapest room in New York City right now. <laughs> With one of the best views, too, yeah. No yeah. doubt about it. And again, uh, New Orleans can be kind of expensive, and uh, living for a year in a boat, uh, you know, uh, uh, ain't uh, ain't free either. So, uh, are you in a marina? Are you anchored? What are we? Uh... We're we're in a marina. We uh, we made a deal with uh, uh, Train Landing, and uh, they're letting us stay here for ten dollars a foot for a month, uh, which we thought was a, a pretty fair deal. Uh, and uh, we're moving on. Uh, in about a week, we're going to go to uh, uh, Pensacola, Pensacola, Florida, and we made a deal there for $10 a foot, so we're doing all right. (laughs) But it's true, for all the expense of beignets in New Orleans, it doesn't compare to the price of diesel fuel, let me tell you. Yep. That's, uh, again, (laughs) gas is, uh, that's one of the big things uh, nobody can get around nowadays, yeah, just thinking that myself. How's the new refrigerator doing? Oh, it's awesome. We, have, we, I mean, we didn't buy a, a marine refrigerator. It's not dual voltage. It's line voltage, uh, and we have an inverter aboard. It, it, it runs so much better than the marine fridge that we threw away. <laughs> it's frost-free. We're not chiseling ice blocks out of it. And, you know, it's nice steady temperature where the other one would go up and down. Uh, it, it's awesome. Do you and use a lot of less power? Do you use a lot of uh, solar power? Well, we have we have uh, 700 watts of solar panels on the boat, and they keep us topped right up. Uh, so I, I would say probably yes when we're out. Uh, right now we're plugged into shore power, so it doesn't even matter. It's just running off the uh, the line voltage. But now, do you use your generator much anymore? Uh, uh, when we are out and about, uh, yes. Uh, we, use, we use the generator... Not really for charging so much as uh, heat. Uh, <laughs> it's been cold out here. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've had some chilly nights on the hook. So, uh, you know, we we got to get the boat warm enough to get to bed and warm enough in the morning to get up and get the coffee going. So, Good times. And, again, uh, you've got to be self-sufficient. I believe I mentioned I had a bad refrigerator uh, getting into Bermuda. And... Um, had call refrigeration company come over from Hamilton to St. George, which is more than a couple miles, and they sent two guys, uh, one of whom never got on the boat. Um, they both charged seventy-five dollars an hour door to door from the place they left in Hamilton, and, and handed me a bill that just stunned me. I went back there. The lady who decides the time—you never get to talk to that lady, man. They what a what a what a game they had going. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, so anyway, like I say, you've got to be able to take care of yourself. And, and again, there's a community in, in the boat world, too, that you get to be part of. Uh, marina oh, exactly. And on the water, you know. Oh, yeah, you can't open a toolbox in a marina without five people stepping up and saying, you need a hand with that? For better or for worse, yeah. And again, <laughs> could have two sides to that, yeah. 
Oh, good. And we've made some, uh, you know, probably uh, special lifelong friends, hopefully. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We've, we've made more friends on this trip than I ever expected to. You're... Dave even managed a Thanksgiving dinner on the boat in this small galley, and we had guests. We had uh, live aboard full-time cruisers who were on the hard, and they couldn't do anything for Thanksgiving. They rented a car, came to New Orleans, and... Uh, Joined us in a feast. Somehow Dave got a, a turkey into a, a seven-inch high oven. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we cooked a 13-pound turkey in a galley oven. <laughs> 14 pounds. <laughs> nice. <laughs> now, we dreaming, uh, we, uh, what, what do we, how do we follow the Great Loop? Are we dreaming of the next trip already or, you know? I think we're going to do the, uh, the Triangle Loop, which is, uh, that's all in the Northeast. It's, it starts, you know, Headed up the Hudson just like the, we did with the loop, uh, but when we get up into uh, Lake Ontario, there uh, we we take a right and and well actually we probably will go the other way. We'll go up the Champlain, up through Lake Champlain, and into the St. Lawrence up there, and then come down. Oh, nice. uh, Toward Lake Ontario. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. And then then back down the Hudson. Uh, and uh, yeah, they call that the Triangle Loop, and we're looking forward to that. Oh, uh, actually, you know, I was a year thinking. How about out the uh, St. Lawrence and, uh, you know, around Newfoundland and home again? That's the Down East Loop. That's, uh, that's, that one's on the radar. We might do that in a few years. Uh, that's, that's a much bigger commitment. Uh, that one's more intimidating to me. There's a lot of uh, cold, oceany water. Yep. Yeah. Chase doesn't like the deep water. Icebergs. <laughs> oh, please, deep water and Newfies, you know. You want to hang out with some uh, fun people that are. Oh, we are, love Newfies. <laughs> yep. So anyway, hey, good to talk to you guys. Glad you're doing well and, and uh, having the time of your lives in New Orleans. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, Tom, can you tell us a little bit more about your gig in Pensacola? Well, I, yeah, it, it's called the 30th Songwriter Festival. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, like I said, it's a, it's a bunch of A-list artists and a bunch of guys at my level. Uh, and they have it at you know, there's stages all over uh, the area along 30A, which is, uh, I guess, the state route through town. Uh, and they just uh, they're, they're putting on they put on this festival every year uh, to call attention to great songwriting and make a bunch of money. <laughs> Anybody that's interested in your music um, can get it through the web. Uh, you recommend any of your stuff somehow? Oh yeah. Well, anyone can go to DaveRowMusic.com, uh, and that's where I have uh, all the stuff for sale, or you know, links to to find it digitally if they want to download. Uh, I think I'm on Spotify. I'm I've, I've made the rounds pretty good. So. Dave Row with an E. That's D- right. DaveRowMusic.com. Excellent. Oh, again, uh, please keep traveling safely and happily. Ah. We shall. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Looking forward to talking to you next month. Um, where do you think you'll be? Pensacola? Well, um, what's today? Today, Yeah, we'll be in, in Pensacola. We'll we'll be at uh, a little marina there, uh, just chilling out and, and spending some time with friends and, and having a good time for ourselves. Thank you very much. Dave Rowe, going around the loop. Adventures of Stinkpot, if you want to follow him on the Facebook. Uh, uh, Stacy puts up stuff pretty regular there. So, uh, 
Yes. Uh, and again, um, how fun to uh, share the adventure vicariously without, uh, you know, having to heat the boat or buy fuel. And, uh, you know, yeah. unfortunately, no beignets here this morning. So <laughs> I know. highly recommend that you. you Thank you, Stacy. Me. It was fun. Yeah. All right. Did you want to cover uh, the Main Built Boats Conference? Yes, yes, yes. Especially printed boats. That what that sounded fascinating. That was an interesting one. And, and you know, it's funny. He's been at our conference probably more than anybody else. James Anderson is his name. He's the head of the three uh, uh, D printing uh, laboratory up at the University of Maine, or one of the heads of it. And he always comes. He used to work at Hodgson Yachts. And then he went up there to do basically research. He's an engineer. And so he came in and, and showed us how they put that 3D boat together. And again, uh, let's back up. They have printed the uh, now the largest boat in largest, the world. Uh, largest boats ever been made by a 3D laser printer. Right. And uh, they think they got three 20, world 26 records. 26 feet or so, yeah. They got three world records by doing it. Yeah. And that was interesting. And, you know, but it's all about designing. And you have to design it appropriately so that the 3D printer will work. You know, you, there's certain things you can't do that the th- because the 3D printer can't do it. You know, yeah. Right? Yeah. but it, it was pretty simple. And, and and at some point, we're thinking that Maine Build Boats will actually take a road trip and invite people to go up to the University of Maine to do that. But oh. the, one of the reasons I asked them about. Uh, uh, solar power was because one of our guest lecturers was that was what it was they were Xantrex and because there's so many changes in the world right now in solar power lithium batteries and stuff they're actually getting rid of generators on these boats that's true and that's... Nigel Calder is behind it uh. not the Nigel Calder that some of us know from the astrophysicist or whatever he is because there's a guy that actually is called Nigel Calder that wrote on the cosmos but no, oh, this is the other two Nigel, Nigel Calder. Yes. <laughs> I've always wanted to call Nigel Calder on the carpet for to see which one he is, and maybe he's a schizophrenic. And <laughs> see if we he can get it. them both on here as guests at the same we time. Could, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, JB, when he was talking about um, uh, launch their building for the Navy there, said they were on the eighth different uh, bottom model for that, uh, so it'll handle and turn quite well. They are designing that. Uh, by how fluid dynamics works, not how our laser printer, printer works. So, you know. Right. Um, but th- that's not so much the issue. It's usually like where you have, say, like a steering wheel. Yeah. You know, you can't do the steering wheel because it doesn't have anything to attach to yet. Right. So there's certain design limitations in that respect. Yeah. Uh-huh. <clears throat> But, you know, you look in the model world, and I put this up on my Facebook page maybe a week or two ago. There's a model builder that does really fancy RC models. And a lot of the guns and stuff, because he does uh, military-type models, uh, these was uh, one was a salvage tug and another one was an icebreaker. And the icebreaker took him three years to do, even with 3D-printed weaponry and lights and all of this. It's all 3D-printed now. So, Mm. But it's fantastic. And then the other conference we had, which was real interesting, was on outboards and the trends in the outboard industry. Because if you go south here... Bigger, more, bigger. Oh, yes. And it's driven by the people. It's not driven by the industry. This is driven by guys that say, i got to have four four outboards, even though they only need two. Yeah. You've got to have the four. But it's interesting because it's going to create other problems in the industry because of service. Mm. You know? Outboards... Uh 
make me think of uh, women and horses I've uh, been able to drive and ride, but uh, my whole life I've never known how they work, you know. Well, we that? could arrange that for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there are lots of cranes that they're putting out now, so all kinds of boatyards now can pick off your outboard and mm-hmm. put it back on. Even but the though problem is, is they can't fix them because if they're, unless they're an authorized dealer. Now, you can take it to this shop, but if you're not usually a customer, sometimes you're at the back of the line. Uh-huh. So commercially, that's a problem. Yeah. But that's another reason to have four of those monsters on the back of the transom <laughs> instead sure of two. two of them running. Yeah, at least one of them will probably still go. And again, you see more uh, transoms uh, lined up with big outboards nowadays than you used to. But they and went into all like the design features and what you have to do to design the bottoms and the and where to place yeah. them on the transom. Oh, yeah. It was pretty interesting conference. Well, a we had a hundred people there. A lot, of, a lot of weight hanging on the absolute back oh, yeah. end of the boat instead of in the middle where it belongs. Right, but they can actually you know move weight forward by putting the the fuel forward and stuff like that. They went into all of that and the design features. There was a couple companies. One of them was a partner of Cox and Gibbs, out of New York, huh. that came and talked to us. Mm. That's very interesting, except we're, we're speeding right along, but headed right to I the I just noticed we're headed uh, to the corner of Boat Talk. We <laughs> haven't even given the phone number or talked to, you know. Uh, That's true. We, we talked to callers this morning, but we call, oh, uh, you know, all people uh, we were calling. And, uh, yeah. Well, again, uh, who lets us come in and talk about boats for an hour in the first place? How lucky is we, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Boat Talk, uh, again, uh, boattalk.org. There's archives there at weru.org, uh, you know. And we, uh, last month, were uh, real happy to talk to Captain Skip Strong. I think our uh, September uh, 03 interview with him was our greatest hit ever. Uh, basically, he speaks for 45 minutes of his uh, Marine Salvage Award. And we re-interviewed him 25 years after the fact. And the punchline's not on the uh, uh, interview we got with more experience. He was 36 years old, first man. Never should have tried what he did. And now, with 25 more years' experience, he kind of thinks that, too. So... <laughs> He says, uh, he says, oh, I would look at it now, but I don't know if I would have done it. So, yeah. Oh, I think he would have. Yeah. And again, uh, boat talk uh, on the computer there. It, check out DaveRowMusic.com. Our yeah. buddy's on StinkPod as well. And check out uh, Boat Talk next year, starting in January. Boat Talk is going to be happening on the second Tuesday of the month from 4 until 5 p.m. 4 until 5. Yeah, we'll be able to shift it all right. I think we'll be fine. They're piping us out. Thanks for listening this morning. Thanks to John down in the engine room. Back to the mute. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Gambell and Hunter Sailmakers, making sales.